Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and today I welcome back Tim Cockrell. He's back to the table, and Tim and I will be discussing his recent sermon from Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. But first, let's diverge a little bit from Mm -hmm. our normal course here. I I want to just mention something. It's been a couple of episodes that you haven't been with us, Tim, and during that time, there's been a lot going on here at, at the church. One of those goings on relates to the elders nomination of Adam Hammett for the position of pastor for administration. And there's one question that I wanted to pose to you today on that topic. I really think it, it, it relates maybe loosely, but at least loosely to Paul's occasional emphasis on the workings of the local church. And that question is, how will this position of pastor for administration and specifically Adam's performing that position and in that position be good for this local body of believers at Grace Baptist Church? Absolutely. It's a great question. And we've had some really good dialogue from, you know, bringing out the job description back in the fall to now presenting Adam as a candidate. And I just want to say how excited I am about Adam serving in that role. One, because I think he's gifted and has already demonstrated his abilities in that way. But two, the fact that he and his family are already a part of our church family and that we've been able to see him grow into this type of responsibility. I think that's what we're all about is to see people equipped and prepared in those ways. You know, when you think about a church like Grace, there's a a wide scope of responsibilities, many different logistics. And many times when we read this pastor for administration, our mind immediately goes to administration. But the pastor is actually the word that I want to emphasize here because, you know, this person is an overseer, a shepherd, and Adam already is one of our elders. He's already pastoring in this context. But for him to be able to devote full-time vocational attention to the oversight of many of the different ministries of our church, I think will just be invaluable. You know, Grace is a church that has many different moving parts, many different programs and activities, and a great deal of potential. But if we don't have someone who's kind of helping to orchestrate those things, building bridges of communication, thinking through processes, it's much more likely that it's going to be frustrating at times, inefficient at other times, and maybe even having things work at cross purposes with one another. But if we have someone who's kind of the hub of the wheel, if you will, that is kind of a center point of communication, helping to coordinate logistics, helping to develop and even deploy leaders into different areas of need, and that also includes caring for our church family. So one of the elements of this role is pastoral care and counseling that I think he serving alongside of the rest of our pastoral team will be that kind of, from my perspective, final piece of the puzzle that allows these logistical things to be cared for as well as the pastoral scope of responsibility. Great. I appreciate that. And, and I might add that uh, if you are listening and would like to get a little bit more um, input from Adam himself uh, through the podcast, last the most recent episode, the last one of January 2023, I'd encourage you to go back and pull that up. Adam shares a little bit more about himself, but also in the context of the passage there here in Philippians that uh, he was specifically responding to. So I encourage you to do that. And thank you for that digression. And now back to our regular our scheduled program. So let's start our discussion here, Tim, with one of your opening comments as you shared that Paul's hope was founded in his confidence in Christ's secure plan for him. 
So I'm reminded of the first of the four spiritual laws. You're familiar with them. I was in college and was very involved in Campus Crusade, now known as Crew. It says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now you believe that, I believe. I believe that. But let's back up and talk about what we mean by a plan. What what is a plan in the context here? Well, the plan ultimately is God's sovereign plan, that he is orchestrating things. He He knows what is for our good and for his glory. I think the, the harder question is w- what is meant by wonderful? Because we gravitate toward that word as if God's plan was then that our children would be healthy, our marriage would be happy, our bank accounts would be prosperous, our work would go well. And when I think about it, I think of Christ's words that I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. John 10.10. 10. You got it. And, and as we think about our disposition, our focus, so many times what we're focused on is our immediate circumstances, our comfort, our, our ease, if you will. But God has a much bigger and deeper plan for us. That is that we would be secure in him, that the gospel would advance. And that's why Paul's perspective is really helpful here, that he looks back on things that nobody would normally call wonderful. Hey, there's people that are slandering you. By the way, you've been in prison for the last four years. You've been separated from the church of Philippi, who you love, but the gospel is going forward. And because of that wonderful plan, Paul could rejoice. And then even looking ahead, as he looks at the prospect of death or conviction before Nero, he says, I'm still going to rejoice because if I live, I'm going to live for Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ. I don't see how I lose in this. And so it kind of broadens our perspective on that the plan is more than just what happens in these few short years on earth, but rather ultimately is about the security and certainty that we have because of what Christ has done. Right. Well, following up in your discussion of Paul's hope, you referenced a passage there in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 5. And in that particular passage, Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings for Christ because those sufferings produce endurance, which produces character, which finally produces hope. And that that hope, just paraphrasing here, will, will be proven to be valid. He won't be d- disappointed in it. So it's this idea of endurance I wanted to talk about here. Mm. Did a quick study of this word. It seems to convey the idea of, of a steadfast. There's a prefix or hypo or, or hippo. And leaning into the pressure of the sufferings, perhaps, instead of passively enduring. Can, can you talk about that idea? Is that a, a correct understanding? I think it is. You know, when we think about suffering, Paul gives us a great example. He is patiently enduring, but he is not passively enduring. We see him praying. He's pressing into God's priorities. He is actively standing in unity with these believers. He's rehearsing truth and grounding himself in, in gospel understanding so that he knows his identity and he has confidence and certainty such that he can even say, it is my confident and eager expectation that I will be vindicated. And so it kind of has the idea of tenaciously clinging to what we know to be true. And that's where the the doctrine even of the perseverance of the saints is that we are holding on to God ultimately because he's holding on to us. You know, it doesn't depend on our grip on him, but his grip on us. And yet it's not called to be just a passive thing, but rather that we are, are seeking to faithfully testify to the goodness of God 
even in the midst of our suffering. And so I think that reframes our perspective on suffering, that we're not just kind of gritting our teeth to get through the valley, but rather we are looking for the opportunities that God's given us in circumstances that we never would have chosen for ourselves. The picture comes to my mind of a, of a weightlifter. You've got a, a weight, you've got a, a not insignificant weight coming mm-hmm. that maybe in a bench press is coming down on you and mm-hmm. you, in order to build your body, have to push up against it. There's that idea of pushing against it, maybe leaning into, and you, you talk about leaning into God mm-hmm. during this time. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more? What does it mean to lean into God? Well, I think first and, and foremost, of pressure. yeah, I think first and foremost, it has to do with what is our source of sufficiency? Because trials are a powerful spiritual catalyst. They peel back the layers of things that we have been trusting instead of Christ. You know, I like to think that I trust Christ fully, but the truth is I rely on my own wisdom. I rely on my own resources. I rely on my health and these different things. And sometimes when those things are stripped away, I realize there's been a substitute savior that's found its way into my life. And so I think, first of all, it's recognizing my own insufficiency, that that there is a a deep dependence on the Lord that if I'm going to walk through this trial in a way that honors God, I've got to be completely dependent on God. I'm going to rehearse those promises, remind myself of truth, because if we just let our heart lead, it's going to lead us down a path of bitterness or frustration or or even despair at, at times. But so when we talk about kind of the the exercise, what we are exercising is our faith. That, that in the times of trials, we were really putting into practice what we say we believe. You know, it was once said, I don't remember even who said it, but, you know, our, our stated belief plus our actual practice equals our actual belief. So we can say that we trust God all we want to, but when the wheels come off and when the clouds roll in, that's when our, our true faith is really tested, refined, and revealed. And I've also heard it said that the best way to find out what you're made of is to see what comes out when you're squeezed. Got it. <laughs> yep. In verse 21, uh, there in uh, here in uh, Philippians chapter 1, Paul shares that, that famous line, everybody who's ever picked up a Bible, I'm sure, is her, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In effect, he isn't accepting the inevitability of death so much as he's celebrating as a follower of Christ the inevitability of eternal life, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this declaration is so foreign, even to many followers of Jesus today in their everyday life, or at least the way we, and let's just face it, I can fall into this, anybody can, uh, the way we live our lives. Uh, let's discuss some practical ways that a believer should be moving from that fearing death to expecting life and mm-hmm. celebrating life. Right. Yeah, I think it starts with an eternal perspective. And that doesn't come naturally for us. We naturally gravitate in a short-sighted way to the frustrations, the challenges, the opportunities, and the comforts that are right in front of us. And that's what our heart tends to become intertwined with and enthralled by. And so I think the way that we move from fearing death to anticipating eternal life is to be thinking about the long view. Because many times what we fear about death is losing the things that our hearts have become attached to here in life. Not necessarily bad things, but not ultimate things. You know, we we don't want to lose our our family. We don't want to um, leave behind a career that we love or, or different comfortable things that we've come to be accustomed to. But if we say, my future is certain because of Christ. 
And in the, in the day that I leave this earth, I will be welcomed into his presence where there will no longer be any pain or sadness or sin or suffering. Well, now that reframes how I think about my life. Yes, as long as God gives me time and opportunity here on earth, I want to serve him. I want him to be exalted, even if that means suffering or sacrifice on my part. But that when death comes, it's not a tragedy, but a triumph. It's the completion of my race to where I'm finally face to face with Jesus. And so, you know, then the inevitable question is, how do we do that practically? I mean, that all sounds kind of generally good theologically, but I think it comes with constantly evaluating our day-to-day decisions because every day our decisions will either result in reward or regret in eternity. And so rather than just viewing, hey, what payoff does this have for me immediately? How am I investing in my life, my life in things that have eternal value? And I think that changes the way we engage in parenting. That changes the way that we spend resources that God has entrusted to us. Changes us how we spend our time or engage in marriage. And that when we begin to ask those types of questions, I think it heightens our focus on what we are ultimately longing for and living for. So a companion question then. Uh, we, we know that as believers we are to rejoice in the fact that we have been we have died with Christ. We've been resurrected with Christ, mm-hmm. and so there's that uh, there's that kinship, and that you know we are in Christ, so we've been you know, buried and resurrected. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet Paul also says throughout his letters, put to death the natural man, mm-hmm. or put to death the members that are uh, that are not uh, members of your body. That is, that is not yes. following. So uh, if your eye sins, then pluck it out. How is it that we can be dead? to Christ or dead in Christ and risen with him yet we still have to put to death the the sinful man the, right. the flesh how is that yeah well I, that would take us a lot longer to fully unpack and I, I'm not sure I even have the caliber but I think it captures what often is referred to as the already and not yet tension that we are already redeemed as God's children but we are not yet what God is intends for us to be. And that's why Philippians 1 verse 6 is such a comforting promise that God who began this good work, who adopts and redeems and who initiates our salvation will also complete or consummate that salvation in the day that we get to be with him. But until then, it's a process of putting off old patterns and putting on new patterns. And in fact, that's what Paul's going to spend most of the rest of the book of Philippians urging them to do. The very next verse, in verse 27, he says, walk worthy as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There are certain priorities and patterns and responsibilities that you are to live out. And so we are dead to sin, and yet we are also to count ourselves dead to sin. That it's a a taking these truths and embodying them in our daily decisions. Okay. Well, listen to this quote. I want you to learn something from this. Until you are ready to die, you are not able to fully live. A wise man once said this. Actually, this is something you shared this past Sunday morning, I know. God seems to have made us to desire life. Mm-hmm. Now, let's face it. When somebody is dying, your body is fighting to live, typically. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it wrong to want to live here on earth, knowing, of course, that we have eternal life awaiting us? I don't think it's wrong at all. I think the the intent behind that phrase that unless you're ready to die, you're not ready to really live the way that God intends. 
suggests that if we don't have eternal confidence in where we're going, then we are not going to be able to live with the fearless faith, the the wholehearted abandon to Christ that he calls us to. Now, as we've already said, that's going to be in process. We we have mixed motives by nature just of, of our own struggles. But that if God calls us to live for an audience of one, that unless we truly have a certainty that our future is secure, that insecurity is going to lead us to fear and and shrinking back in um, in doubt when really what we need to do is step forward. And so, of course, God gives us opportunities here on earth that he wants us to lean into and to live for fully. Um, we, we see that with all of the apostles. We even see that in Paul's example here in Philippians. I, I, I long to, to be with you that you might grow in the progress and joy in the faith, but that our hope is not placed there. And so it's, it's good things that are put in proper perspective. So in, in the case of Paul, I think somebody can, could perhaps get the wrong idea that Paul, um, and we've got to be careful here because we don't know exactly uh, his mindset, but mm-hmm. Paul wants to die. Right. And maybe there is a sense, you know, he's in prison, he could be down mm-hmm. uh, emotionally, but Paul desires, I think the key is Paul desires to do God's will and he mm-hmm. believes it's God's will that he would be around for the coming years and we think it's probably about two or three years perhaps mm-hmm. that he was actually around until he was killed is that a true representation of that dynamic with paul between his desiring to be with christ but willing or even wanting to be here because god wants him to be here yes i think it is absolutely true i think it's less about him wanting to escape the sufferings of earth and more about him wanting to experience the the intimacy with Christ in heaven because he's demonstrated a willingness to suffer all throughout his ministry. But what he's going to say is that to depart and be with Christ is better by far. And yet he still says, but I know it's more necessary that you, for you that I remain. And so that's what I'm, I'm confident is going to happen. But I think that's really what we need to focus on is that the thing that makes heaven heaven is that God is there. And so if we aren't living our lives to know Christ and to pursue him, then once we get to heaven, it won't be as enthralling because we're, we haven't lived with that priority up to that point. Um, whereas if, if we are living for this earth, if we've trusted in Christ, I'm confident we'll be in his presence, but there will be a sense of loss, I, I believe, when we reach heaven. The shadow will be lifted. Yes. Tim, near the end of your presentation, while we're on this subject of life mm-hmm. and death, you, you discussed the difficult issue of suicide, and specifically Christians who would commit suicide or would be thinking about that. I certainly appreciated your sense of treatment of, of what is a very real and so often misunderstood problem here in the church. But even believers of, of many years can fall prey to Satan's lie that God's plan for my life isn't trustworthy, it's not good enough, it's it's too painful, whatever it might be. How have you seen this problem present itself in the church? And how can the any of us, any believer in the church, um, how can we be more sensitive to what's going on? Mm-hmm. 
It's a, such a good question, and I'm glad you asked it because, in fact, in the second service, I was able to kind of emphasize this point. In the first service, I was running out of time. I got a little long-winded on some of the earlier points, and so I actually bypassed this point. Calibration and, time, And right? immediately regretted it because this, this is such a central question that if Paul says to be with Christ is better by far and that this world is full of brokenness and pain, you know that there are people in the audience that are beginning to think through well, then what am I doing here? Why wouldn't I just die and be with Christ? So you ask the question, kind of how have we seen this problem present itself in the church? I think there are certain distortions that Satan introduces that leads to confusion and ultimately to some really tragic consequences. You know, one of the distortions can be, well, God's plan doesn't include suffering for you. God wouldn't want you to suffer in this way. And therefore, we feel some uh, freedom to exercise sovereignty over life and death. And by the way, this would be perhaps an extension of the health and wealth gospel, uh, or at least akin to it. Potentially. And we can recognize the health and wealth gospel in its its most obvious forms. You know, the send me $100 and you'll get $1,000 kind of thing. But I really do think that endemic to all of us, there is this sense that if I trust in Christ and follow him, he will make my life better. And and I think that is true as we began talking about his wonderful plan for our lives. But that begins to get tested as we experience suffering and difficulty. And so we begin to feel like we ought to be sovereign over life and death, that we, we should be able to determine when it starts or when it stops. I think another really dangerous lie that gets introduced is that you only have value if you are productive. Mm -hmm. And so many times when I have people that I talk to that deal with thoughts of self-harm or even suicide, it's that they don't want to be a burden for someone else. Maybe they've they've had a, a disability that now they can't care for themselves, or maybe that they're retired and that they their whole life have been known for what they could do and suddenly that element of their identity is removed. And that's where I think these gospel truths help reorient our perspective because Satan wants to confuse us, to bring frustration and despair that ultimately leads someone to make a choice that is irreversible. And that's the thing that's just so tragic about suicide is that in a moment of confusion and cloudy thinking, someone can make a decision that is irreversible. And that's why I think we as a church need to make it a place where we can have these conversations, which is why I regretted so much not bringing it up in the first service, is because I think if everyone were honest, even if it was only a fleeting thought, we've all had that thought at least once, that you know what? To be with Jesus would be better than whatever it is that I'm dealing with here. And it'd be better for them too, is what for others who are in my life. Is exactly. Yep. And so Satan takes those thoughts and begins to cultivate them and without the benefit of community as a safeguard to help calibrate and, and refocus our thoughts on truth, we can begin to go down a path that's really dark and really dangerous. It also brings up the importance of a proper theology of whatever it is where, you know, I talk about a proper theology of, of retirement. Mm-hmm. What, what does the Bible say about getting older and leaving your job? You know, you know, we can talk about that and there are certainly instructive uh, comments in there. I don't think the idea of retirement necessarily is uh, explicitly 
certainly not uh, uh, taught in that way, but there are some principles here. Um, everybody is a, the- a theologian. The question mm-hmm. is, are you going to be a good one or a bad one? Yes. And you're talking about having some real bad theology so that when you're down and things are coming at you, you're, it's easier to for Satan to push you one direction if you don't have a good theology of suffering. Correct. And, and a good community because yeah. for any of us, we can be, we can have blind spots. We can be short-sighted. We can be in that moment of despair. We see many biblical characters, you know, Elijah's like, Lord, just let me die. I'm ready. Jeremiah, David, I mean, all the way down you got the line. It. Yeah. You could, you could have many different people along the way, but that we see God's grace through God's people, which is again, just a really strong argument for not just being at church, but being the church for one another. And if I may, on behalf of our brother Jeff Burr, uh, was sat in a uh, ABF Adult Bible Fellowship Leaders uh, seminar the other day, and Jeff was making a point. I, I really appreciated this point, as you know, we would consider ourselves people of the book or people mm-hmm. of the of the Word, and and we should be that. But Jeff was pointing out that our adult Bible fellowships, those that's those smaller groups, smaller communities, are so important. Yes, for the teaching, but historically, adult Bible fellowships have been focused on fellowship, care, and teaching. Those are the three arms or the three prongs, and uh, it's easy for us to want to focus on just the teaching. Mm-hmm. But when we're not being a community we're not fulfilling the role that we've, we've designated there. And frankly, we're, we're short circuiting the idea of, of being a part of the community of believers. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, a good litmus test I like to try to use for myself as well as for people in our church is if you got some devastating news, you know, whatever it maybe would be, who would you call or text or, you know, whatever, who would you reach out to? And the sad thing to me is many times it's somebody outside the church that somebody would reach for. And I think our goal ought to be that we are developing a a cohesive community such that at least one or two of those people would be someone that's a part of your small group, a part of your ABF, somebody that you serve with here at Grace, that there is that that community that's cultivated. And if you're listening and not a part of a community like that, we encourage you, seek after one. You need to be involved. We want you to be involved here at Grace, but if Grace is not your home church or uh, uh, you just can't, you need to find that. We would ask you to even contact the church if we can help you mm-hmm. to do that and to get you plugged into something. Tim, anything else you want to share about next week, where things are going and uh, what, what we're looking to do? Yeah, so next week we're going to be finishing up chapter one. Matt Bennett is going to be preaching for us. And I'm especially excited about this. We've talked a little bit about the Multiply Grace Initiative, where we are seeking to develop, deploy, and celebrate ministry partnerships primarily with other churches in our region as well as in our nation. And so Matt's passage really dovetails with that perspective. And so Matt's going to highlight uh, even some practical ways that that happens and really just encourage us as to what it means to live as kingdom citizens and to stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm in the task that God's given us. Great. Hey, thanks for being here. We've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and you can access Grace sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. 
Plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word in the last few verses of Philippians chapter 1. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.